Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. And I think because we don't talk about grief a lot as a society, and I think it's hard to imagine until you've experienced grief, that it's not just someone sad for about a year and then you light some candles and it's fine. <laughs> this is an anniversary, it seems fine. But I think grief seems to me, because it's the shadow of love, so you, you can't grieve anyone and everyone. You grieve someone who was very important in your life, perhaps you were dependent on or they were dependent on you, but you deeply loved them. And I, I think it seems likely that the grief you feel is proportionate to the love that you felt. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview. I'm Stephanie Boland, Head of Digital here at Prospect magazine. And this week we'll be talking to journalist Sue Chandrika Chakrabarti about grief, loneliness and the internet. Sue Chandrika wrote an essay for Prospect Online about her experience being in a WhatsApp group for young orphans. In it, she reflects the many stages of grief and why talking with strangers all over the world is a powerful form of therapy. Before I meet her, I'm joined here in the studio by our digital assistant, Rebecca Liu. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Steph. Something we talked about a lot, um, both before she came in and in general in the office, is about how the internet can help bring people together, or or not, I suppose. What's been your experience of it? Do you have a Twitter clique rally around you? <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I, th- I think about this a lot, and it depresses me. Um, so my experience <laughs> of it now is... I think I'm lucky enough to have an overwhelmingly positive experience on Twitter in terms of, you know, people are generally really nice about my articles. Um, Even the criticism I get is often so well thought out and generous. Um, But even with all of that, I still, my brain cannot handle being on it. To flip between the very kind of light, glib things and then suddenly very upsetting things? Is it the kind of juxtaposition? Yeah, and then you kind of do realize how much anger gets elevated as well. Um, yeah, and I, I think we were talking about, um, well, I've been thinking a lot about Web 2.0 and something that Suchandrika's article reminds me of are internet communities that were more bounded by an interest. So this is sort of the age of blog posts and forums yeah i love a forum you're very into forums. i was so into forums it is it's it's strange isn't it though that mass age of social media where the only thing you have in common is that all of you are on twitter Mm. um does lead to a very different dynamic i always think of two specific things one is a 
piece of research that came out which we can link to in the podcast description which showed that on social media angry tweets spread seven times faster than positive ones so mm-hmm. negative it's not just strong emotions that attract people it's specifically negative things get amplified and the other one was an interview I did with a psychologist, which I wrote it for Prospects, where she says exactly what you just said. Your brain is not evolved to handle social media. And we're very bad at dealing with criticism generally in our lives, but we're particularly bad at dealing with it online because we can't differentiate between somebody just kind of having a moan and maybe they don't like our book and that's fine. And there is a real threat to kind of my social position in my society, which you have to preserve as a as a human. We're very social creatures. Absolutely. It's catastrophic for us if you if you lose your status of being thought of as a good person. Um, and so, yeah, we're we're not built to be on there, but we all like to. Our brains just amplify. Go like, yeah, yeah, hurt me more. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I want Jack to Dorothy. I want to join in with this other person's anger. Um, but if it is directed at you, it can be really devastating because mm-hmm. you, you you can't you can't put in place the context that goes okay that's yeah one person's random opinion we can't filter it properly. I'd um, love to train myself to be the kind of person that thrives off hatred. I'm not that person, <laughs> but if I have that power, I would be very afraid of myself, I think. But these people who are able to be in social media communities or web communities that are very vast and yet use them to have discussions and use them in a positive sense, um, I'm always both very jealous and very admiring of. So maybe the best thing to do is something like this WhatsApp group where you take it quite quickly from that very broad space to a slightly more... Absolutely. And I think something that really came through in that article um, was she mentioned everyone feels a social responsibility to each other, um, which I thought was a great way of saying it because it's not, you know, it's not blanket praise or just unconditional, you know, gushy love. It it is just I will respect you as a human being. Um, And yeah, I think I think it is very hard to do in a space where everyone's got their defenses up and you become I find myself becoming a defensive kind of hard person uh, on the Internet. And yeah, I'd I'd love to teach myself to let that go and make myself a bit more vulnerable. Thanks, Rebecca. And now on to our main discussion. Hey, welcome back to the Prospect interview. I'm joined with Suchandrika Chakrabarti and we have quite a unusual story maybe to talk about today. Um, so welcome. I don't know if you want to kick us off with um, a one-line pricey of what you wrote about for us. Yeah, I guess it was a personal essay about how I've joined a WhatsApp group for young orphans. With, and they're, they're all strangers. Oh my God. I mean, this was one of these stories, I should say, I edited this piece and occasionally a writer sends you a pitch in your inbox with a little pricey of what they want to write about and you go, okay, it's this Brexit angle, is this new, how can I shape it? And this I went, yes, absolutely, immediately. Um, so take us back a little bit and give us a, a potted history of how you ended up in a WhatsApp group full of strangers who are all young orphans. 
Um, so going all the way back, why I'd be there at all is um, um, my mum died when I was 16. Actually, today is the 20th anniversary of her death, oddly. So I'm 36 and that happened when I was 16. And then my dad died three years later when I was in my second year at uni. Um, so obviously all of that happened within three years. I have an older brother as well. So he's seven years older than me. And that was it. That was really our family. And so that my mum died um, in January 2000. My dad died in April 2003. And back then we had the internet, but it was kind of web 1.0. People weren't really building groups and not everyone created content in the way that we kind of all do now. Also, I do think when you're grieving or when you're in a difficult place in life, it's really hard to ask for help. I think you have to get to a place of relative safety in yourself or to have healed to a certain extent to ask for help so it didn't occur to me that I could find support on the internet it was quite hard to go to therapy at all I remember um, when I was at uni I'd come back in my second year and I'd, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer it wasn't terminal but it was still very upsetting and I told my tutor and my dad said look why don't you ask them if you can get therapy in the university so I did that um but I kind of went in and it was this post looking back, he was probably really young, like 25 or something. And I didn't just sort of talk about my dad's illness. I talked about my mum and like everything. And he looked really shocked and he looked kind of like, oh, maybe he wasn't briefed. I don't know. Maybe he thought it was just a bereavement service. So it made me think, oh, God, I'm too much. My problems are too much. Ah, And I never went back. And I saw him once around university and he's not meant to speak to me. And I was just like mouthing, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't go. I'm so sorry. But... um. So when I tried to find help in real life, I didn't know what my story was to tell. It's so weird, but I think a lot of processing grief uses the imagination because the people aren't here. And it's the stories you tell and you have to find that narrative even to find the right therapist. And so obviously you didn't have WhatsApp, you didn't have any social media platforms in 2003 because I joined Facebook after my finals in 2005. So I think the idea of a group of strangers on the internet being in rooms was restricted to chat rooms probably restricted to like an interest and I wouldn't have known how to find this kind of thing so then moving a lot further forward in time um oh yeah so I found myself on Twitter as, as so many of us are uh, all day and when was this when you were kind of oh so this was like early December last year so okay just, oh very recent yeah okay. really recently and Griefcast had tweeted um does anyone know about res like resources for people who've lost both parents at Christmas. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. That's me. Okay, um, let's have a look at this. And then this thread started. So the, the eventual founder of the WhatsApp group, Catherine Horgan, she was in there sort of saying, oh, I'd love to know if anyone has that. And then actually, should we set up a group? What about WhatsApp? And I was like, oh, this stuff has happened. And then um, she set up the WhatsApp group and basically said, I'll pin this to my Twitter feed if you want to come in because you have to be invited with your phone number. So it is very private in that way. You can um, direct message her on Twitter with your phone number, say what your family situation is. So there's a slight gatekeeping and then she'll invite you in. So I thought, I, I think I want to be part of that. I'd like to see a whole group of people who've got a similar situation to me, even if it's further in the past me perhaps than maybe a lot of people in the group. I assumed it would be. And I'm probably in the back of my mind, I, I don't think I was consciously thinking about it, but this anniversary of my mum was probably in my mind that it wouldn't be a bad thing to have some support when this unimaginable 20th anniversary comes up. So I was like, great, I'll join on the 11th of December. And I saw people sort of introducing themselves and their situations and I thought, well, great. And there's something very freeing saying, like, I'm so challenged, this is my situation. 
and just never been around a group of people who have the same thing as me before so good to be here really it's so you write really affectingly in the essay and it's a line that really stuck with me that you were 19 um when your father died and you and you became an orphan and the thing you say is people were scared by my grief people kind of didn't know how to deal with this from a 19 year old what was it like to suddenly be in this group of people where you go oh you're not going to be put off by the the magnitude of this because you've you've been there you understand it yeah you know that was such a hard time and when I was 19 I don't think I can overstate how upsetting it was I took the summer term of university my dad died in the Easter holidays and so I took that time off but my friends were like come and stay for a weekend or whatever like doing the best that 19 and 20 year olds can do and so I'd pop up and I'd be around university. And I remember the um, a senior member of staff said to me, Haha, what, what are you doing back here? And I was just like, really? Um, so it, it will judge. And then someone else, I remember this guy in the year above me who was really kind, said, I'm so sorry about what's happened. That's that's so terrible. How are you? And then, because he's such a nice person, I remember it so vividly, he's, he asked me, and how is your mum doing? Which is so thoughtful, but the worst question. Right, because you had to respond with... Well, well I didn't. I just said, I didn't. So that's another thing that I really hated. Well, that's very kind of you too. <laughs> There's so much managing of other people's reactions. Um, and you learn that. And that was something I thought, well, I just won't have to do that in this group. And everyone else will understand how difficult that is. So you, if you immediately, when you met people, said, hey, yeah, and my parents died, you change that emotional register of an introduction or a conversation in a way that's really unfair but at the same time you're always judging and deciding when you tell someone and then you do have bad reactions and sometimes those bad reactions are from people who have lost people themselves you you know people are in their own difficult phases in their lives too you can't expect they'll just be like immediately brilliant but I thought with a, a WhatsApp group that it's less confrontational. Sometimes um, I found with, I've, I've been writing quite a few personal essays and I explored grief on my podcast in the last episode. And I didn't talk about mine. I spoke to a writer um, whose mum died about two years ago and she wrote an essay about that. But she also tweeted in her mum's last illness. And I thought that was really fascinating because, again, I sort of had the experience before the internet become social and I wonder what I would have been like and what the experience would be like if it had been in a digital age and so this writer Rachel Verona Cotty who's American um, I, w- I wanted to say to her like do you, do you think this is better that you are able to always keep people updated and is it a writer thing with a different person feel differently so that's really fascinating me how the digital intersects with this kind of experience that I've had is it is it better now? I'm going to say on the whole, I think it's better that people talk about these taboo subjects much more than we used to. And grief isn't the only one. Um, so it's, I'd say overall it's better, but then I'm someone who's come through the other side. I'm not in the midst of like, you know, first year of grief, which is horrifying now. So Because the form of the grief, so if you're not on WhatsApp, some of our um, listeners might not have it installed on their phones you are in kind of a group chat with lots of different people texting at once and there's a huge range of people in this group like you say there's people who have got very recent very raw grief but also people who may be coming back to things that have happened in the past and a huge range of subjects that come up I think it's fair to say yeah, it's not all doom and gloom and I think because we don't talk about grief a lot as a society and I think it's hard to imagine un- until you've experienced grief that it's not just someone sad for about a year 
and then you light some candles and it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) This is an anniversary, it seems fine. But I think grief seems to me, because it's the shadow of love. So you you can't grieve anyone and everyone. You grieve someone who was very important in your life, perhaps you were dependent on or they were dependent on you, but you deeply loved them. And I I think... I think it seems likely that the grief you feel is proportion, proportionate to the love that you felt. Um, so it's natural that you are going to feel terrible. But also, I, I think in early grief, you spend a lot of time bargaining with whatever deity or not even a deity, just the universe to have them back and so it's a strange paradox of wanting to stay in that moment and being close to them but also wanting time to pass so that you feel better but it takes you away from them so i think all these paradoxes in grief are um not apparent to someone who hasn't been through it and you can be happy sometimes remembering good things or um you can meet someone who knew your parents for instance when they were young and they tell you this fun story about them and you're like that was brilliant i didn't know that my mom had done, done that so there's still joy in that experience and there's sadness and there's self-loathing and there's physical effects like um, stress reactions, cortisol is heightened, that's not very good for you, stomach upsets, all sorts of things. So I think that, um, I've forgotten what your question is and I've gone quite far from it, but what did you all think? <laughs> no, it's, I, I really like that you brought that up about all of those turbulent emotions because yeah. I was sort of asking about those different topics in the yeah. group, but how, I mean, how you encompass that and... You know, this is a 24-hour chat as well. Mm. You can dip into it at any point. That must be quite handy if you're going, you know, sometimes actually feel really joyful in the midst of this horrible thing that's happened. Yeah, so there's some stuff that was funny. Um, so on New Year's Eve, which I started the essay with, I can't remember who brought it up, but someone talked about sex, basically, and what effect grief has had on it. So you, you'd assume that grief kills the libido. But like, I've been thinking about this recently, few of my friends, you know, I'm in my 30s, my friends have lost family members. And it is partly to do with age, but like they've become pregnant in the year after losing someone. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. But then I thought, actually, my parents both made choices around marriage and children in the year after very big losses. My dad, um, youngest of 13 children, his parents probably die by the time he's 30 but his oldest brother who's 25 years older than him was the first member of the family to come to England got married to my auntie Eileen had five children when my dad came he had ready-made family and then when his brother died in 1974 that changed everything my dad was like dating having fun he had a red sports car he had sideburns <laughs> like he was, he was having a great life my auntie Eileen would be like go have fun like you'll have a race when you come back so he had a really nice introduction to England and not something every immigrant has but when his brother died and left my aunt Eileen a widow in her 40s and five children I think under the age of 18 at that point he was like god I, I need to grow up and he was about 34 35 then but he was like right I'm gonna I'm gonna do this properly so he'd always always had a thing for my mum and he was like I'm gonna go back to Calcutta where they're both from and just see what her deal is see if she's single. tell her about the sports car yeah <laughs> see if she likes sideburns he's very 70s very 70s <laughs> love the 70s and he didn't know because she so she had a reputation um for she they were both from the same caste both brahmins but within the brahmin caste there are things called gotras i, I don't know what they postcodes within district and my mum's are slightly higher than his so 
she couldn't necessarily like just go dating if she wanted, but her parents were like, bring suitable bachelors round and be like, this guy, no. This, and she had the power of veto, which is becoming a problem because her younger sister wanted to get married. So my dad was like, I could go there, go to a house, wear my best blue shirt and yellow tie. So it's the 70s. <laughs> and, um, and ask, and she could still say no, but at least I did it. So he turns up and he goes, yeah, do you want to, do you want to go? Will she, will she come out with me on a date? And her parents are like, what do you reckon? She's like, yes. And wow. then that's how it happened. So he, in his mind, that was doing it properly, like taking that chance, going for the right person rather than just what he considered having fun, messing about and and seeing if she'll say yes. And so they got married. And then, um, and then my brother about a year later. So I will say these decisions were probably made by a person who was grieving. I'm right. not saying they're bad decisions, but it does show that my family started amongst grief and then I was born in 1983 my mum's mum had died in 1980 so I was definitely my mum was 35 when I was born so again I was definitely a child of grief 100% this is so interesting because I I have a friend who lost her mother and she said almost exactly the same thing she went maybe I'll just have a baby now and it was exactly what you described so this sort of comes up in your whatsapp group on on new year's eve (laughs) yeah so there's also like more hilarious stuff about sex and I think also losing your parents as teenagers I mean, I don't think we fully understand, or t- certainly teenagers don't understand their own sex drives. We don't um, encourage them to really have them. We still place a lot of morality on sex. I say sex is morally neutral. It's how we treat the people we have sex with. Um, some We almost don't talk about it as well. Yeah, it's sort like, of teenage. Some parents would be like, you can do it under my roof, fine. Um, I mean, surely we should just be like, be really honest with us and we'll provide condoms and safety and I don't know but it made me look back and think well which one was I and it's the urge to create something that comes later and are you just confused as a teenager and could the urge to create be something else could it be writing could it be creating not human life but something else is that what I'm doing now in a delayed way I don't know but um yeah the, the sex chat when it's a group for death was was funny and, and there are other things like um something that's, that leaves quite large in the essays, graduation. So someone quite young, I guess, in the group, I don't know her age, but she mentioned graduation and being parentless. And I remember how that felt. I'm just being so embarrassed. There's something very exposing about all of this grief and losing so many members of your family who should be there. And it's just at every event, you're like, oh God, it's me again with the no parents, I know. <laughs> and it's so obvious. But actually, I've, at graduation you don't spend all that time with your parents the photography makes it seem that way but a lot of it's like go over there don't wear your motorboard yet wear the gown kneel get this photo here do that hold the fake scroll yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's all like being ordered around and your parents kind of waiting being like i'm so proud like where should i be so it isn't that noticeable um but the founder of the group Catherine horgan posted a picture with i think her boyfriend and her friend and i thought do you know what that's really nice there's a really nice picture of me with my brother and his girlfriend at the time now now his wife and um let's post that in there and i just i was trying to be reassuring so i think there is this huge feeling when you've suffered with something that if you see someone else going through it and i think grief is one but it can be many things you just don't want to see someone falling to the same pitfalls as you and if it could be better you try to make it better for them so i posted this picture and people people commented on it as they would and they said really sweet things and i was like oh god no one has ever commented on this photo like it should be framed it should be on a mantelpiece it would be my parents living room but they're not there we had to sell the house and what what has that made of me and um it took me back to something i read a couple of months ago 
um, it's all like narratively or something like that. And a woman was talking to her dad who had lost his parents when he was really young. And he'd pulled himself out of poverty and ended up going to an amazing university um, and done really well in life. And they'd gone to therapy together. Can't remember why. But um, this daughter said to her dad, you've had such a difficult life. It's been so terrible. I remember this line, your mother drowned herself in a well. I was like, wow, that is, that's, that's, that's terrible. Really, yeah. That's really bad. This, this is like nonfiction as well. I was like, oh my God. And she said, Dad, who celebrated you when you got into this amazing school? You know, who was there for you when you when you did that? And he just said really quietly, well, well no one is, you know, my parents had died and I was just really great. And and I I was like, I do that. You you run into a spiel to stop the other person feeling sorry for you. And you're just like, oh, it's fine because my expectations are way down here. And the daughter said, that isn't actually good enough. I, I'm proud of you, Dad. I'm proud of you. Always say, I'm proud of you. And then he cried. And I was like, oh, God. I'm, wow. That's that. Yeah. Like, no one did it on purpose, taking away their encouragement and their pride in you. But the fact is, it hasn't been there. So what do you do? You can become self-sufficient. But I think you also become someone who thinks you don't deserve it. It comes back to what you were saying earlier about that need to translate yourself as mm. well. That you go, I, d I, don't, I don't want to make this other person feel bad. I'm going to have to do sort of management of their feelings. Yeah. And to be, as a writer in a written medium, I can imagine it's quite helpful for that as well. Because in a WhatsApp group, you know, if you post something, you can go, I'm going to have a think about how I reply to that. Or maybe I'll mute it for a little bit and put it aside for a bit. Or maybe sometimes I'll be really chatty and I want to talk to everyone. Do you find it, it ebbs and flows in there? Are there patterns of how people chat? Where are they from? Kind of, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so intrigued by the idea yeah, of this Yeah, so, um, so there's a lot of British people, lots of Americans, lots of Europeans. And sometimes funny things have come up. I, I said something was chalk and cheese and someone who's from Spain was like, oh, I've never heard that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it means this. She's like, no, I love it. I'm going to use it. And I love someone running around Spain. Someone in Spain is going to be like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I love that. And... Um, so yeah, you do have a kind of a, the American, I wake up to like, you know, maybe 20 messages from the Americans chatting and that's just time differences. And then I might mention the weather or something in the morning and then the, the Brits kind of chat a bit. And there are a few of us in London, but there are people from everywhere in England. Um, and it does ebb and flow. Like I, I don't think you always feel like you want to be chatting in there. Sometimes I just want to read. Something like the other night someone did say, it's absolutely heartbreaking does it ever get easier? And I was just like, oh my God, I felt that so strongly. And I, I almost know exactly where she is in her journey, like obviously in an early part of it. And and she does have us to ask. So let's say something. Um, so I wasn't the first person to see it. Someone else said something very beautiful. It's this analogy I've seen on Twitter where grief is like a balloon in a box and the balloon gets smaller over time and that's grief in your mind like in the beginning it takes up everything inside you and over time it becomes manageable and I really love that analogy and I think that was very good that the person had put that in there and I sort of thought well I'll, I'll say something I'll say what I wish someone had said to me and I said well wh why I think it's so painful is I think it takes the love that you have between two people and I think it has to put it inside one person and I think that's what happens at the end of the process and that is very painful but it's also really fascinating it can be filled with joy um, I can't think of any other reason why we've evolved to have this very long period of grieving. It's a time when you're not operating 100% in your mind. Um, you're forgetful. One of my friends was saying she forgot to switch off the gas and stuff. So when she left the house, so it's not 
good for you. So how how's the human race actually survived? And um, and something that Karen Lloyd with Griefcast talks about quite a bit is she's um, I think she said one baby. She's pregnant again. She talks about the begin- the first year of having a baby being very similar to like she lost her dad when she was fifteen. You suddenly have this new person in the room and you don't know what they want and you have to work out what the cries mean. And in the first year of losing someone, they're suddenly gone and you're like, where are they when I want them? And how do I figure out how to be without them? So this is interesting flip. And obviously with a baby, with a child, they take a long time to grow up. So how have we as a species evolved? There must be reasons behind why grief is this that way. That attachment and how you... Yeah. I'm really interested in that. In fact, I'm working on a book. Um, it was beginning... It was starting with like the creativity inherent in grief. I think there had to be to to be able to put a narrative together. I think is a real plus when you're dealing with grief. But then the the internet side of things has just absolutely fascinated me. So I think the WhatsApp thing might be my last chapter. But I'm very interested in in other people's stories of grieving in a digital age. It wouldn't just be a straightforward memoir. So I'm doing chapters and an outline on that now. It's taken me a good year to get here actually. So over this year, I've been trying out these personal essays seeing how it feels to write them, getting a lot of response back. People will find like find your Twitter, find your Facebook inbox, email you and tell you how it made them feel, which is utterly fascinating. And it's shown me that we don't, we still don't have enough of a conversation around grief. The more voices, the better. And yeah, it's an interesting time with the internet. Whatever taboo there is out there, if people can self-publish, they'll say, well, I've been through it or someone I love has been through it. We're talking about it. I don't care if it's not in the headlines. We're going to talk about it. I wanted to pick your brains a little bit more on that because I don't know if some of the people listening might have lost people very close to them. And if you've not found that kind of community online, I can imagine the idea of going on the, onto the internet to talk about something which comes with so many different huge emotions could be quite scary. Twitter notoriously can be not the most pleasant of places at all times. I think that's fair to say. Obviously, in this case, it's led to a really wonderful thing. What is it you think about that WhatsApp community that's allowed it to be a different sort of space to maybe some other internet spaces you write about and explore? I think um, the kind of people who are looking at the grief cast Twitter are probably quite self-selecting. They're people who've been through something. And that a really great community has developed around that podcast, which is great. Um I think it's a case of what what WhatsApp is as a platform, and I think there are, you may well return to this as a subject for other reasons. Because um, I read the other day that on the thirty first of December last year, WhatsApp reached a bi- billion messages being sent a day. So it's obviously the biggest platform in the world. It's bigger than Facebook Messenger. And within our group, people have mentioned, oh, there's the Parentless Club on Facebook. You can join that group. But for me, there's the feeling that I don't go on Facebook much anymore. I'm sure kind of most people don't. And I feel like if I put something very personal in a group, either it'd be left to gather dust or a fight to a break. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure who's on Facebook anymore. And I'm I'm not sure who would find my comment. But with WhatsApp, like we all keep half an eye on our WhatsApp, like our nearest and dearest are on there. Um, if someone in an emergency and they couldn't call you, they would WhatsApp you probably if they had enough 4G. <laughs> <laughs> if that's Just the about... kind of way you communicate. Yes, yeah, or yeah. they text you, I suppose. And WhatsApp is very close to texting. And it's very immediate, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So um, I probably only check it about three times a day. I don't have the notifications on, but I make a point of checking it. Um, 
and, and to have one billion messages going back and forth everyone who's on it is making a point of checking it um it comes directly to your phones so i call it a support group in my pockets um you just know like when when that person said does it ever get easier that is such a raw vulnerable and trusting thing to put in there they knew that someone would respond and and the first person did like very quickly i got there about a couple of hours later um so i think there's this feeling that people will only join because they really want to be there i have noticed so i have a picture of my face at least my first name so chadrika is not a lot of us so i'm very findable some people have their surnames and picture themselves some people don't have a picture you only have their number there they don't have a name i'm starting to think that people who are in the midst of grief and aren't ready but want to listen and want to know there are people out there they're probably not showing their identities i, I don't know that and i'm not going to pressure anyone or push anyone but i decided that i was fine with people knowing who i was i shared the pro- the prospect piece in there i told them that it was being written i asked permission of the founder and i spoke to a few people as well so that's really important to me obviously you would ask permission but also i wouldn't um ever quote anyone in maybe certainly not the first year of grieving but maybe not even the first couple so i don't think you're yourself and i think people have a lot of regrets about the decisions they make and at times i wouldn't interview someone in that early stage um yeah you, you get a very strong quick sense of people from just chatting in that way it feels closed enough as opposed to facebook twitter instagram um yeah which are sort of semi-public by their nature aren't they yeah it feels like texting and you can choose your level of anonymity or engagement um yeah interesting earlier in our conversation you mentioned chat rooms it's yeah. like an early form of an internet gathering space and in a way it feels like we've gone back to that where you know, maybe you're the figure in the chat room where everyone knows who you actually are. If you're in a group for computer scientists, they might go, oh, yeah, we actually know who that is. But you'd also have these people, some of whom would become really popular in a certain internet community where you don't know their real name or they don't use their real name. Um, and that freedom to flip back and forth. I know sometimes we hear about proposals to have to use your real name online to try and curb bullying and things like that. But it sounds like from what you're saying that anonymity within the community could be such a powerful tool as well i think that obviously now and i've been a journalist for 15 years i feel responsibility to use my real name so even in the past when you know we all try and use reddit communities and like you have to use them in a very specific way you have to go in and be part of them you can't just chuck a link in so i'd go into ones i actually am interested in but i'd go in as me um so it's all be straightforward but me in 2000 or 2003 like I probably could have done without anonymity. It was hard enough living that life where it, was, it felt so constantly obvious to me, like she's the one without parents. Like you've got a big sign over your yeah. head, kind of going, <laughs> very vulnerable right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, please don't say the wrong thing. Um, and I can imagine that's how certain people feel in that group. And and that's fine. They could be as anonymous as they want. It's an achievement to have said, right, I'm going to go in and be part of it. The, the founder told me... Um, a woman had contacted her on Twitter and said, oh, can my brother join? I think if I mention it to him, he's more likely to join it rather than find it himself. And so the founder said, great, please do that. And so people are looking after each other in that sense. And um, the woman said, I won't, I won't come in the group so he can say whatever he wants. Oh. Yeah, so he's really free. So I think even even the siblings, I would say my brother, I don't know, but I'd say my brother's had a very different experience 
to me. You have a different relationship to your parents, each of you. Plus, he is seven years older than me, so that's an entire school. He, uh, When I got to my second year of senior school, he'd already gone to uni. So we almost had different people at different ages parenting us. And sometimes it's really constraining to have someone who knows you be in that room. It's, it's like the opposite of therapy then, isn't it? A therapist should be someone who doesn't know you and is a complete third party. So I think that was really nice that this sister had this kind of sense of responsibility. But I think everyone knows what it was like to be that vulnerable in that group. I don't I don't think people are joining it for a laugh. I don't think anyone thinks, let's just get in that group and mess it up. I think people are joining because they have that feeling of either, God, I need this, and I need God. I need this, but also um, I really hope everyone in there never feels as low as I ever did. So I think it's also the reason that brings people together that can lead to this tenderness. Um, you won't get that with every shared experience or every shared um, interest group. I suppose it's interesting you mentioned a brother because I've been very struck while you're talking how many women you've mentioned. Um, who, you know, we're told are always a bit more chatting communicative, even though I think in this country we're not very good in, in general about being chatting communicative. Maybe women are slightly better at it. Um, do you have kind of men who come along and, and use that space too? No, there's, there's probably about three men who have declared themselves to be men. So there might be more people who are anonymous in that group, which is, which is absolutely fine. But remember that a guy joined and his name is clearly a, a male name and another guy was like oh another man so I was like, oh, there really isn't there really isn't much there um maybe they look at this pin tweet on Catherine Horgan's twitter and and think it's not for me I, I don't know um sometimes when something is organized by a woman or is hosted by a woman a podcast with two female hosts there's sometimes a feeling for men that this isn't for me. Whereas because men have been the mainstream and been the ones who created culture, we as women don't tend to go, oh, that's not for me. We tend to go, cool, I'll give it a go. Seems all right. So I think in a sense, it's a cultural issue of, oh, I don't think it was made for me. So I'll keep out. I don't I don't know, but it seems like possibly three men <laughs> are in there. I hope there are more if if they need to be in there. And I don't, no, the answer is that like, with Facebook groups I joined since going freelance a couple of years ago, they were all women. They are all women, um, overwhelmingly. And it's so interesting that there are old boys networks out there because it seems to me women are better at building networks, but then obviously I'm in the female ones and not in the men's ones. Yeah, so you're going, we're great at this. Yeah, this is brilliant, there's so many. <laughs> or are we making up for that time when women didn't have those networks? Are we kind of slightly spurred on to do that? I don't know, but... Women are very good at creating these sisterhoods, aren't aren't we, in general, and tend to be better at that kind of nurturing sympathy stuff. Or are we socialised to? And do we have this belief that women do it? Is it actually one of those ideas that's holding women back a little bit? So I, I don't know. Um, but I, I have found when I've hosted things, when I've organised things, that men sometimes think it's not for them, whereas women don't tend to make that assumption when it's a man-hosted thing, because that's standard. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think also some men I know, not all of them, but probably more than the women I know who have been in the same situation, who have experienced very profound grief, feel a little bit guilty about being emotional about it. And maybe there's a little bit of that as well. Um... But, I mean, if somebody does want to find your group, if they're listening and they go, this sounds like a fantastic thing, um, it's on Twitter. They can find the details. Is that right? Yeah, they need to look up Catherine Hogan's Twitter account. Um, so there's a link at the bottom of that essay. Um, I can't remember her Twitter name, but I think it's very similar to her name, Catherine Hogan. Catherine with a K. And um, you can also look on the Griefcast podcast Twitter and the Griefcast has retweeted her. And what you need to do is direct message Catherine with your number. Just tell her your situation with your parents because she, you know, she wants to make sure it's people who are in the same situation. And then she'll invite you in and we'll all be there chatting about God knows what. Um, if it's a Wednesday, I mean, it could be... <sighs> sports at school it could be sex definitely any day of the week (laughs) why not it could be uh nostalgia for the 80s i don't know it's not all when when you talk about grief you're actually talking about life even if you're talking about someone who's died you're talking about the life that they lived the best memories of them you talk about relationships it's all of life in there and if you want to find people who've but it's fairly unusual situation like most people buy 40, 50, even 60, even have not lost both parents. Um, it is very isolating. So, yeah, look us up, join us. Maybe get a picture of your dad's sideburns. Which... <laughs> yeah. I'll find some 70s ones of my dad. They'll be very entertaining. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's all from us this week. Thank you for joining us on The Prospect interview. You can read Sue Chandrika's story on The Prospect website. And finally, if you did enjoy the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help other people find us. Goodbye and see you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.